Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Table Talk, discussions of church, theology, and culture. My name is Luke Burrow. I'm the family and ministry coordinator here at CBC Elderton. With me, as always, is our lead pastor, Andrew Hall. If you are listening to this episode as it's releasing, we are sitting here right at the beginning of September, which means for those, for most people listening probably, but for us in ministry as well, it's the beginning of a very busy season as we all come off from the summer and as a new season of ministry begins. And Andrew, this year, the new ministry season is coinciding with a new sermon series. Mm -hmm. Many people will know we've even done some podcast episodes on it uh, that we've spent quite a while now going through the book of Proverbs as a church. How long has it been that we've been doing Proverbs, Andrew? We started Proverbs back in September of 2022, and we went almost entirely the 12 months. Yeah, so uh, pretty much a year, a yeah, year through Proverbs. Yeah, with the exception, I think, of uh, the Christmas season. And yet, yeah. um, I only felt like we were scratching the surface of Proverbs. Yeah, Proverbs will do that to you for sure. And as we wrap up our Proverbs series and step into the next series, Andrew, you have opted to do your next preaching series on the book of James. Uh, For some people, that may seem just like a choice that would make just as much sense as any other choice, but I know that you had some very specific reasons for wanting to follow up Proverbs with James. And so... As we get started, this first episode will be just an introduction to uh, the book of James and what we're thinking about it as we embark on a new sermon series. We'll be doing a a series of podcast episodes here on James for the next several weeks. So, Andrew, just to to get started, why the book of James? So, uh, I should, I'll start with an ecclesiological perspective. So, in terms of how do I decide what to preach, Mm -hmm. I... uh, I, I do have conversations with the elders. So it's yeah. not just, um, this is what Andrew wants to preach. And so Andrew can get up on Sunday mornings and say whatever he wants. Sure. Maybe some churches do that, but yeah, <laughs> we've, we've, we do a little more uh, here at CBC for sure. So I'm fully submitted to my elders and uh, I usually, uh, I, I take the lead on it. Uh, that's part of my my job as lead pastor, but I present to the elders, here's here's how I think, uh, this book of the Bible can um, counter uh, some of the things that we're experiencing. Here are some issues that I think we need to address. Here's some things in the culture. Um, in particular, coming off of the book of Proverbs, uh, Proverbs is the Old Testament book of, uh, it, it is the book of excellence uh, on wisdom. Mm-hmm. And if you're going to counter uh, the wisdom of the Old Testament, maybe not uh, in a counter in that sense, but if you're going to balance it off, uh, James is the book of of wisdom uh, from the New Testament perspective. Yet the books are are very different. While James reflects the wisdom tradition of the Old Testament, uh, he he certainly reflects a wisdom tradition uh, from a different perspective. Yeah. Um, so Proverbs. The book of Proverbs really is speaking to potential monarchs or potential people who may have influence and power. So it's always speaking from a position of authority that you have it and how do you handle it and how are you going to rule well? Uh, Bruce Malchow called uh, a section of Proverbs 
uh, a manual for future monarchs. And I yeah. think that's a good description of what Proverbs is doing is it's training up future monarchs. But the Bible speaks not only to those who are in power, but to those who are powerless. Mm-hmm. And the book of James, I think, is a book that speaks to those who do not have power. And it's it's speaking to those who don't have influence. And what do you do when you don't have influence? What do you do when you don't have power? And those are important things in our culture because um, our culture has embraced a, a mindset that um, we, we need to understand it. Um, but intuitively, anybody who used to have power should not have power. Yeah. And anybody who didn't have power should have power. And... And, and as a result of that, um, all of the social structures uh, have been inverted. In fact, today I was listening, uh, I was, I was uh, out in the car uh, over the lunch hour, and I was listening to one of the radio phone-in programs, and they were talking about uh, uh, children's rights versus parental rights, yeah. and, and this enormous conflict that, that is coming uh, in our culture. And, and it's a result, really, of what happens when you overthrow power structures. Mm-hmm. You're overthrowing the parental responsibilities and you're giving children full autonomous rights as individuals that we function as, as uh, people now who um, we, we, the, the individual is the one who has the rights rather mm-hmm. than the, there's collective rights. So, so as a result of that, um, I think the Bible does speak to us as people who maybe find ourselves as Christians without power and without influence in our culture. And James wants to instruct us in several ways. Yeah, in fact, I think it would be fair to say that probably more of the Bible speaks to God's people from a position of not being in power than from a position of being in power. Certainly we have both, but as you as you look at the New Testament, at least from what, uh, or most of what comes to mind from uh, from my own memory is that uh, God's people, when the Bible was being written, the New Testament especially, spent a lot of their time persecuted and without much power. And so you, uh, I'm going to actually go off script just a little bit here, Andrew. You've talked about how James is sort of understood to be the wisdom literature of the mm-hmm. New Testament. For some people listening, that may be sort of a bit of a surprise. They've maybe read the book of James before and maybe that's gone totally, totally over their heads. They never realized that. That's a, a bit of a surprise. What what elements or what about the book of James causes uh, people who study it and who say that this is in the wisdom tradition, what, what tips us off to the fact that James is maybe more rooted in a wisdom tradition than other books of the New Testament? Yeah, so first to be clear, we're not saying that James is wisdom literature, but rather that he's speaking within the wisdom tradition. The wisdom tradition of the Old Testament uh, really begins with understanding who we are and who God is. And in light of that, um, James, uh, he only mentions Christ, I think, by name twice in chapter 1, verse 1, and chapter 2, verse 1. And and there's no real doctrine of uh, there's no evident doctrine of atonement. There's no evident doctrine of the resurrection. I think they're implied in places, yeah. but they're not explicit. Um, and so James has very practical concerns about how we live our lives. Uh, so from the very outset of the book, James begins by talking about 
um, if you lack wisdom, uh, that you should ask of God who gives yeah. generously. In chapter, um, in chapter one, that we face trials and these trials are producing in us character, hope, and, and wisdom. And if you lack wisdom, you should ask of God and you shouldn't be double-minded. And then by the time we get to chapter three, he's fleshing out that wisdom that there's, there's wisdom from below and there's wisdom from above. And the wisdom from below is earthly and demonic and divisive. And the wisdom from above is spiritual and godly and righteous and peaceable. And so he's contrasting uh, these, these dualities um, and as a result of that, um, he's he's really trying to get people to think about how do you live wisely, how do you live skillfully uh, when you when you don't have the kind of influence that maybe you'd like to have, mm-hmm. and so that that essentially then becomes why this book is a book about wisdom. And so, as you might do, listener, if you were. Uh, opening up a new book of the Bible in a study Bible, we want to spend just a little bit of time doing a little bit of introduction to the book of James. Um, As it stands here at the beginning of September 2023, Andrew, you are planning to preach an introductory introductory sermon, excuse me, to Mm -hmm. the book of James this Sunday that if I if I understand correctly, it's going to be just the very first very first verse, unless maybe right. your your plans have changed. But that's I, I think that's what you're planning on doing, which is is going to be just an overview of of mm-hmm. what this book is and all of the the details around it. And we want to do a little bit of that here in podcast form today, and so. Uh, some basic questions that we all want to ask and try to have in our minds as we're reading any book of the Bible. Uh, uh, first one might be who who wrote the book. Sometimes this is a very easy question. Sometimes this is a very complicated question. And in this case, I would say it's it's maybe easier than some, but also maybe not totally mm-hmm. apparent right from the beginning. So this this book, Andrew, is called the Book of James, but we. We know a couple of biblical figures with that name, and do we have a strong sense of which James might have written this book? So, uh, a couple things that we need to say. Uh, first, the name James is actually from the the King James version of the Bible. Yeah, uh, it's in Greek. If you're reading it, it's the name Jacob. Yeah. Uh, so he is the counterpart to Jacob of the Old Testament, mm-hmm. uh, who stands in the lineage of the people of God. Um, so maybe that throws some people, but uh, it shouldn't. Um, but but the name is Jacob in Greek. Yep. Uh, it's just by tradition that we continue to call him James. Uh, James, who is he? Uh, there's probably two possibilities, and. I don't think that it really matters which one you choose. Sure, um, it doesn't really change. It doesn't change it. How you understand it doesn't it, change yeah. meaning. It doesn't change its authority in Scripture. Um, I would say that that there are many today who would say that uh, the author is James, the brother of Jesus. That uh, he seemed to have influence. We know in Acts fifteen as leading the church in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was very Jewish in his outlook and perspective, and scholars have pointed out how he, uh, how, how the language of Acts 15 is, uh, there, there's connections to the book of James. Yeah. Certainly, we know from Mark's gospel that uh, in the early days of Jesus' ministry, his, his brothers rejected him. They did not see him as the Messiah. 
And so we, we can, uh, I think, assume rightly that uh, since he became a leader of the church by the time we get to Acts 15, that he had a lot of knowledge of uh, who his brother was, his, his half-brother, and that he mm-hmm. understood uh, his teachings. Um, he wouldn't have been a leader in the Church of Jerusalem otherwise. Um, I, I think the one disadvantage of that perspective is that uh, he wasn't there and present with the teaching when Jesus, his brother, was was teaching. Yeah. So the other option is James the Apostle. Um, James the Apostle certainly was there. Uh, there are so many connections between the Sermon on the Mount and the book of James. It's yeah. it's uh, if, if you start to just go through the Sermon on the Mount and the book of James, you can barely find a verse that doesn't have some sort of connection uh, between James and the Sermon on the Mount. So, so there seems to be at least evidence that that uh, whoever wrote this book was very familiar with the teachings of Jesus, James the Apostle or James the brother of Jesus. There's very good reasons for both. Uh, James the Apostle, he was was killed uh, fairly early on. Uh, he was martyred for his faith. So uh, before AD 43, I think it is, uh, he would have been martyred so long before the Gentiles would have been incorporated into the church. The thing about the book of James, if we start to get into who wrote it, um, it, it definitely points out, uh, if you look at the book, there are no real discussions about the questions of that Paul has in terms of Gentiles. Yeah, which... Paul talks about a lot. Yeah, and yeah. and Paul is very concerned about unity in the church, bringing two different kind of ethnicities together. James just seems to speak to to Jewish believers. In fact, what we see in uh, in chapter one, verse one, he says he's writing to to those who have been in the dispersion or the diaspora, and mm-hmm. and that gives us a little bit of a clue. It tells us that. Um, some scholars think that that when we're talking about the dispersion, we're just talking about Christians being scattered in general. Yeah. But we know that in Acts chapter 8, after Stephen was martyred, um, he had gotten up and he had testified to Jesus as the true temple and, and people, the Jewish people were infuriated by him. Um, they, they, he was killed and, and Saul who was also called Paul, was there giving approval. And the church, we're told in Acts 8, scattered. And so I I think that there's good reason to believe that the book of James was written shortly after the time uh, of the church being scattered out of Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria. And, And so James, whether it's the brother of Jesus or it's the apostle, um, was writing to those who were scattered and and writing to them because they had faced probably they had faced some sort of threat of persecution just yeah. as Stephen had been persecuted so they were facing this threat and and so there's the reality that they did not have power they did not have influence they were being threatened they were um, these uh, they were nonconformists to the mm-hmm. Jewish movement and as nonconformists to the Jewish movement and to the culture at large. Uh, they were they were people who had to be on the flea and uh, they had to they had to run for their lives. So some some have questioned like what does that mean? Does it mean that um, 
does it mean that they were reacting to it? Are they using, are they trying to exert some sort of influence and power? It could be, I I don't know, but certainly by the time we get to uh, chapter four, we have fights and quarrels among the people of God. We have the threat of um, not having, and so you murder, uh, you, you fight and quarrel and you don't have because you don't ask and you, your, your desires are wrong. So it could very well be that, that what these people wanted was they, they had felt the loss of their influence. Mm-hmm. They used to have influence as Jews, and now they've lost it. They're being persecuted. They're being scattered. And so what do you do? What do you do when you have lost your cultural influence, when you've lost your cultural position? And I think that is, uh, in large measure, what James is writing to. And that is, of course, a, a very timely message for today for God's people who are experiencing so much of the same things here in our day. Uh, for, for those of you, by the way, keeping score of the biblical chronology of when books came out uh, that we've been talking about, that, that would make this a very early book. This, this is mm-hmm. a, a, a New Testament book that is very, very close to the life of Christ, even compared to other New, New Testament books, which is just an interesting little fact for, for those yeah. of you wanting some bonus information on our sermon series. We, we often don't think of this in terms of how things are developed. Uh, we, we've just got our New Testaments and they start with the Gospels and they go through chronologically, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Then we get to Acts and the development of the church. And then we get a bunch of Paul's letters and some general letters. Um, but we don't appreciate that the gospels were probably written later. Yeah. Uh, James may be the first book that was written um, in the new Testament mm-hmm. times. And so what we may be studying is it could very well be the first book that was written of the new Testament before the gospels were written, which puts it like you said, um, it puts it within less than 10 years after Jesus' crucifixion. Yeah. Could be even as close as five, six, seven years after Jesus' death. And that's not long at all. And it no. tells us a lot about the Jesus movement of its early days. Yeah. What was it like to be a Christian in those days just after Jesus' death? Absolutely. When we when we sort of try to take in more of the context around a book, there, there's a lot that we can learn and I think it really helps us to to get a better understanding then of of what we're about to read or what we as a church are about mm-hmm. to go through as a sermon series. Uh, normally, when we're looking at a book, we want to think a little bit about the sort of the the geographic context. Where, who was it written to, and where were those people? But as you've mentioned, uh, this letter is maybe a little unique. It's not the only letter like this, but it's unique in that it doesn't seem to have been addressed to one specific place in one specific church, which is what we often see in many right. New Testament letters. This one is maybe a little more of a universal letter compared to maybe some of Paul's letters that are very focused on one specific people at one specific moment. Certainly it's sent out, we know from verse one, chapter one, one, that it's sent out to the dispersion. So it's yeah. James probably writing from Jerusalem, um, and he's writing to believers who've been scattered because of persecution, mm-hmm. who've been scattered about. And so he's trying to get the message out. And so there's a sense in which, how are we going to behave in light of facing persecution, facing opposition? We don't want to turn on ourselves and we don't want to turn on others. But James has this, um, he has this 
duality about it. You don't want to be friends with the world. You're either a friend of God or you're a friend of the world. Chapter four, verse four. This is the double-mindedness that he's talking about in chapter one, Mm -hmm. uh, verses five through eight. You don't want to be a double-minded man being tossed to and fro. You don't want to be a double-minded person who uh, treats people one way because they're rich and another way because they're poor, chapter two. You don't want to be a person who talks one way in public and yet acts a different way in private, chapter three. You don't want to be a person who, who is, um, who, who who responds wrongly when you're when when you've got the kind of influence uh, that that maybe merchants have? Now, you don't want to think highly about your life when your life is in the hands of God. Chapter four and chapter five, and so James really, I think, so scholars scholars don't think that there's much of a structure to the book of James. I actually think that there's a fair bit of structure, um, and and I'm probably. Um, because of because of how I believe in, in, I have a high view of the scriptures. I believe in the inspiration of the scriptures. It's been given by God for us and for our good. And so I, I don't think that there's just this random smattering of ideas, but there's a thoughtful mm-hmm. intentionality. And James seems to structure it, his, his writings around the brothers. So whenever we find that phrase, the brothers, it's probably a clue that we're entering into a new section that's developing this idea of don't be double-minded. Faith works. And the way that faith works is by being steadfast and immovable, not being double-minded. And so this has been uh, one of many episodes we're going to do on the book of James as we Step into a new ministry season. Andrew, you have titled your sermon series, James, A Guide for Nonconformists. And you've spoken a little bit of, about that title already, but maybe just as, as we're signing off here, why don't you give a, a pitch for that particular title and what we can expect from this sermon series over the next, I don't, how long are you? I'm not sure yet how long, so, a little while. TBD on that one. Yeah. So uh, nonconformists, uh, there's, there's a couple of things here. To, to pick upon first. Um, in our cultural moment, it's cool to be a nonconformist. Very much, yeah. Uh, but everybody's unique until you get to know them. Because mm-hmm. uh, we're, we're all unique until you find out that everyone's unique, which being unique means you're normal. Um, mm-hmm. so, so there's a sense in which there's this cultural coolness about being a nonconformist. Um, and yet... The nonconformity has a historical context to it. Um, so I've picked up uh, the idea of nonconformists because in England in the 16th century, uh, 16th and 17th century, there was a movement of uh, those who resisted state power and state authority. Mm-hmm. They did not believe that uh, you had to have a license to preach the gospel. Uh, so, so one church denomination supported by the, uh, I'll just say it was the Church of England that said you had to have a license to, to preach the gospel. Yeah. Um, those who were part of the Anglican Church, uh, the, the Church of England at the time, uh, who disagreed with that became nonconformists. Yeah. They did not think that you could be, um, uh, you could not be transformed by the patterns of this world, but that you had to be you couldn't be conformed to the patterns of this world, but you had to be transformed as Paul would say, by the renewing of your mind. So in a sense, there's a bit of a historical context that I wanted to just 
just nod my head to that that Christians throughout the ages have been nonconformists because the world around us is calling us to um, to conform. J.B. Phillips in his translation or his paraphrase of uh, Romans 12 verse, uh, verse 2, where Paul says, do not be uh, conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. J.B. Phillips put that as, uh, don't be squeezed into the world's mold. Mm. Don't be conformed. We're not conforming to, to the way that this world operates. And so James is giving us guidance. How are we not conforming? Uh, our culture has a certain way of thinking about power and influence. And, and the way of Jesus, uh, James picks up on this. He's, he's picking up on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and the way that Jesus lived his life to absolutely oppose this conformist mindset of our day. Yeah. That you don't use power to, to be... Um, oppressive. You don't push people to conform into beliefs. What you end up doing is you live in a way that displays that there is a wisdom that comes from above, that you can be single-minded in your devotion because when you're a friend of God, you're not a friend of the world and you can live in conformity to Christ and not in conformity to this world. So there you have it, folks. It's a, it's a pretty snappy sermon series title, but there's some some church history nerdery in there and a, a few <laughs> few other important things as well. Lots so, of nerdery here. Yes, it's a, that's a, a, good, a good preview of what you can expect. Uh, we will be beginning our sermon series in the book of James here at CBC this, this upcoming Sunday as we are recording. And uh, we're going to be doing a number of podcast episodes on it as well, including our episode next week where we're going to jump into the, the first section of the book of James. Lots to consider about suffering and about trials. And so we look forward to diving into the book of James with you all starting next week. Thanks very much for listening. We'll see you then. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your week. Bye, everybody. <laughs>